2: Lots of news uh, overnight on big tech. And here to break it down with us is Shira Ovaday. She's a Bloomberg Gadfly columnist covering all things technology. uh, And she writes terrific columns. You definitely should read them. Bloomberg.com slash Gadfly. Uh, Shira, I want to start actually with a development uh, where you have big technology companies, namely Google and Facebook, opposing a bill that was raised in U.S. Congress to prevent child sex trafficking, which seems like, not really that good of a thing to oppose because it seems like you should want to oppose child sex trafficking. What's going on here? Right. So
3: there there's this um bill circulating about ads on backpage.com, which is a, you know, website that is sometimes used for nefarious purposes. And look, the the backdrop here why Google and Facebook are opposing this and other measures in Congress is they're terrified of uh, t- having legal responsibility for what their users do on their websites. And that can be child tr- child sex trafficking or it can be if I um, have Beyonce's latest album and post it on YouTube, right? Google doesn't want legal responsibility for that music piracy either.
2: But this also raises a question of the access that government has to prevent some of these nefarious activities that are conducted via Google, via Facebook. Um, If, you know, the companies themselves won't do it because they have a concern about privacy, does that open up the door to the government saying, we want to weigh in? We want to do that. Yeah. Well, I I mean, I'll I'll just stipulate that Google and Facebook do not want
3: child sex trafficking on their websites that is not good for anybody. It is illegal. They have uh, large groups of people that try to weed out this stuff um, from popping up on, on their websites and apps. So it's not like they're doing nothing. It's, again, they're trying to do something both because they want to be responsible, and it's in their interest to do so to avoid um, regulation because that's what they're trying to prevent. Uh, it, and the regulation they're trying to prevent is not because of the child sex trafficking stuff, but it's for things that are less nefarious. Again, um Piracy of music and and videos, things that happen more common that are do not have as negative consequences, but still have business ramifications for Google and Facebook.
1: When you say business ramifications, you mean they still want to make a lot of money and they don't want to take any responsibility for what goes on their sites.
3: Yes, they do not want to be in a position where they are blocking people from posting stuff uh, because it might have a clip from Beyonce's latest music video. Right.
1: Um, Okay. So wait a minute here. The internet was funded by the U.S. taxpayer. When you pay your cable or your mobile bill or any kind of bill that allows you access, whether it's Wi-Fi or LTE, whatever you want to talk about, there are taxes in there. So we continue to subsidize the very platform that they use in order to make billions and billions of dollars selling ads to people, right? Right.
3: Uh, that's probably fair. I mean, they the, so they want they no risk, but they want to make all the money. <laughs> yes, I. In okay. short, yes. I, I mean, they, look, look, they take a it. lot of risk of their uh, on their business, too. And they're creating a lot of Internet and in- infrastructure that didn't exist before. But I hear what you're saying. Yeah. But it's they, like, you know,
1: being, you know, being able to have access to yes. the public trunk system. I mean, you used to have to have an FCC license in order to yes. broadcast and to the look, public. The
3: interesting phenomenon that's really happened in the last year or so is that you're seeing um, political figures on the left and on the right, including people like Steve Bannon, making an argument for regulating these companies like telephone companies, basically like uh, regulated monopolies like phone companies.
2: Well, and and this is this is a crucial point because you have people on the right like Steve Bannon uh, and you have people on the left also saying, you know what, these companies are getting too big and a little bit frightening and we need to impose more regulations. Uh, Does that make it more likely that there will be some sort of antitrust movement or at least uh, something that would undermine some of the profitability of, uh, of these companies? I
3: think that's the biggest question for these internet companies is does the regulation um, and prote- potential antitrust or regulatory crackdown look like in coming years? I think that's the biggest potential risk if you're Google or Facebook or Amazon.
2: So what are some of the uh, ideas that have been stipulated to with respect to what that kind of regulation Right so like? there's the sort of Steve Bannon idea let's regulate these companies like
3: utilities um you know, there's this interesting academic argument that's been making the rounds this year about, particularly around Amazon, it applies to other companies too. Of basically looking at U.S. antitrust law and saying that has, this has become too narrowly focused on prices, on whether you know our companies so big that they have the power to raise prices. If you look at a company like Amazon, it's doing the opposite, right? So the academic argument that's making the rounds, um, a leftist academic argument, is let's look at other aspects of how these companies are abusing their power beyond pricing? Um, Are they squashing the ability of, you know, smaller companies to compete or to sell their companies on platforms like Amazon at on the same terms as Amazon itself? So it's again, there's really interesting things happening. I do not know if anything is really going to happen, but I agree that this kind of political and regulatory scrutiny is a huge business risk for internet companies.
1: Sure. Do you feel that public utility commissions at the state level would like to be responsible for setting the rules and regulations about access to the internet via these companies?
3: I don't know. I don't know what professional regulators want. I mean, I Yes, well, I mean, right, me regulators it, like to regulate.
1: Well, let me just ask it another way. Yeah. Do you feel that these companies are public utilities?
3: I don't know. I don't know.
1: I mean, if you couldn't use good them, I mean, if yeah. you couldn't if you if someone pulled the plug on your Facebook or your Google, um you'd miss them? For sure. Okay.
3: For sure, but I don't know if that's the definition of a utility. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to try to no, no, um, I understand. make legal. Yeah, I, I don't know is the fairest answer.
1: Interesting. All right. Well, uh, obviously, this is not a topic that's going away anytime soon. Um, Interesting how the intersection, as you said, Lisa, business, government, particularly when it comes to the internet.
2: And we didn't even talk about the latest development, which is that uh, Google is investing in Lyft, uh, and they already have an investment in Uber, so they're just, you know going toward world domination that way.
1: Yeah, I wonder if they'll pay taxes for using all those roads. Yeah. Um, Shira Oviday, thank you very much. Uh, Technology columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. Follow her on Twitter at Shira Oviday. I want to bring in Henry Peabody. He is a portfolio manager at Eaton Vance helping to manage more than 300 billion dollars. He is at the Harvard Science Lab today in uh, Boston. And uh, Henry, thank you for being with us. I wonder if you could begin by just talking a little bit about the concept of liquidity and how that plays into what you believe people uh, experienced investors, knowledgeable investors, will do if indeed we do not get. Uh, an interest rate increase this year from the Federal Reserve?
4: Well, you know, liquidity in in our minds is not only what the Federal Reserve and central banks provide to the market, but it's also um, a function of the ability to get in and out of positions. And, you know, when we think about the markets and the risk potentially to higher rates and really how crowded positioning has become um, in index-like products in core bond in rates and duration. um, It's something to consider. And what we're seeing today and over the past few days, at least in the credit markets, has been a big flood into new issue, which signals to us that there's a lot of demand out there for relatively high quality paper, which when turned the other way, um, we're not really sure how the market's going to behave, and it's important to maintain a bit of a defensive posture against that.
2: So, Henry, uh, you know, you're, you're you're illuminating some issues that a number of big investors have been talking about recently. Uh, Gallup Capital Chief Executive Officer said overnight in a Bloomberg Television interview in Asia that investors are not getting paid for the risks they're taking, particularly in U.S. subordinated debt. I'm wondering how do you maintain a defensive posture when you're seeing this kind of uh, flood of cash? going into, in particular, the highest quality paper, uh, arguably pushing up values there uh, more than
4: anywhere else? You know, you, you hit the nail right on the head. And I think that what you need to do is both maintain liquidity in the form of cash. And don't forget the cost of holding that cash in the form of drag or actually foregone income is relatively low today. Um, The other thing you need to do is stay very diversified. Um, There's a great opportunity today to spread risk out among various asset classes and take advantage of flexibility. Um, Diversifying to local denominated, emerging and developed market debt, depending on where you look, uh, is an attractive place. Diversifying into, for example, floating rate loans or the high yield space when uh, valuations are attractive. It's, It's good to spread those bets out because benchmark-like strategies have gone very far, and when the tide turns, you need to know where that liquidity is going to be demanded, who's demanding it, and what the net result on the market is going to be. And it's, it's wise to stay clear of, of much of that risk.
2: Henry, I just want to point out that your Eaton Vance multi-sector income fund, which you help to oversee, it's about a $500 million fund, has performed better than 99% of its peers over the past uh, year to date and including the past 12 months. Uh, So far this year, you're up almost 10%. Um, Interesting that you're saying to go more toward cash. What's your boldest bet right now?
4: Right now, the biggest lever we have pulled is the non-dollar space, and that's responsible for roughly half of that performance this year. Um, the dollar, you take, take positioning, you take valuation, um, you think about the influence that the U.S. has globally, or, or, or sometimes lack thereof, um, growth in Asia and synchronized global growth, and it all paints to, uh, or points to a, a weaker dollar. Um, we've moved a long way, and we could very well pause, But if you are able to look at individual countries across the span of the globe, not necessarily allocate to those indices, because as many of your guests point out, there's a great deal of richness in some of those indices and concentration. But look at reform stories, look at Asian growth, look at the lack of populism in LATAM, for example, and you can get exposure to very positive fundamentals away from U.S. credit and interest rate risk. So that flexibility to go across geographies and industries um, is is fairly important in fixed income, where things are valued very dearly. Henry,
1: do you ever feel that you're whistling in the wind when it comes to talking about individual (laughs) bond issues in a world where exchange-traded funds and indexes seem to be the flavor of the
4: year? It seems it more and more these days. However, um, we're getting to the point where you know, we've shown with our results that active management is a is a powerful tool in fixed income, where opportunities to differentiate yourself and take advantage of uh, market and liquidity conditions can be a real lever to pull. So we've shown that it works. Um, we also think that where the market is now, with that flood of capital into one-way positioning um, is gonna prove exceptionally beneficial to investors when those positions are unwound. We don't want to be in the way of a great deal of capital looking for liquidity. Okay,
2: so let's talk about that unwind. Uh, First of all, how much have you boosted your cash holdings recently? Uh, And and second of all, what would prompt that kind of reversal of the crowded
4: positions? So we maintain, um, you know, roughly 10 to 15% cash um, in the fund. And it's been that way for the, the recent past. And as for what might cause that, looking historically, just look at, for example, the slope of the Euro dollar curve um, against funds. And you see that the market tends to underappreciate the Fed. The market tends to project current conditions in the future. And today, that's low vol, that's low rates, that's low inflation, that's crowded positioning. We like to project that into the future collectively. The market will underappreciate the Fed. Now, we don't need four hikes to get some ugly numbers in the 10-year note. The 10-year note has a nine-year duration. It trades at 220, and it's traded in a 150 basis point range over the past couple of years. So you don't need much to get some negative numbers. And the mar- the market is not appreciating what the Fed is saying. Yellen wants to get the QE unwind up going before she potentially loses office. That's a much harder thing to reverse. So she wants her legacy to be that to be a, 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 a yes. starting to to go. So when we see that move higher it's not going to take much we could see some of this unwind
2: so right now i'm looking at a 10-year treasury yield of 2.2 percent how high would it have to go to to cause some some serious pain and and which uh, asset class is most vulnerable
4: um hard to judge how high it needs to go to cause pain um probably i think there's probably some technical selling you know north of two fifty three percent something like that as i speculate um I th- The most vulnerable places are that high-quality um, space. We've seen a flood of, uh, of high-quality new issuance. We've seen, um, recent, in recent days, focus on hold co-issuance, focus on carry trades, focus on relative value instead of total return, preferreds you know, coming to get some equity treatment. So this is very late credit cycle behavior. That doesn't mean growth can't extend things, but you're starting to see behavior that shows um, that the market is getting a bit on the extended side. So it's that high quality area that is likely subject to some some, some negative signs and investor disappointment.
2: Henry Peabody, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we love talking with you. Henry Peabody is a portfolio manager at Eaton Vance, which oversees $300 billion of assets and is based in Boston.
1: All right, let's turn our attention now to the U.S. dollar. How about buying dollars, selling treasuries, and then waiting for the U.S. Congress and the administration to agree on tax cuts? Is that a strategy? Well, Vincent Signorella, our FX strategist for Bloomberg News, joins us here in our studio at 1130. Uh, Vincent, so uh, is that the strategy that you see a lot of professionals employing?
5: Uh, No, not really. (laughs) The buy buy dollar trade, the Trump trade, has been... um, Revised, shall we say, with the with the excitement, decimated, the, destroyed,
2: <laughs> annihilated. They're Go trying.
5: they as David said, you're trying to breathe some life in it. There's optimism everywhere. There's a hopium going on in the market right now. That on September 25th we're going to get a tax plan that the Trump administration can put forward and get. Bipartisan support and we will see fiscal stimulus in 2018 early in 2018 the reality of the situation is from what I've read of it so far is There's a very small chance. This is going to be revenue neutral and without a revenue neutral budget This will not pass even Mitch McConnell has said he will not vote for a budget that is not revenue neutral We'll never get the conservatives in the Republican Party on board certainly won't get the Democrats on board The thing is dead in the water. So we'll see this all reverse.
2: Okay So since we've seen the Trump bet just totally destroyed earlier this year with the dollar plunging uh, the most for a period on record in some in some ways. um, I just have to wonder, you know, people, you start to get conspiracy theorists saying that the dollar isn't going to be used as a reserve currency as much. It's not as much of a haven currency because of all the uncertainty. Uh, We're not seeing that much of a surge in the dollar on the heels of the uh, yet another nuclear uh, test or another missile test anyway uh, by North Korea. What What's going on here?
5: The, the reason for that is that every time we've seen the dollar rally and every time we have seen um, a treasury sell off this year, it's been a great trade to fade. So when you see the situation in North Korea and there there's there's not the appetite to buy dollars uh, as there was before because the trade tends to revert and it, and it doesn't hold so it, it it's a very very it has been a very very short term gain trade not a long term winner as you mentioned this year it's been a horrible
2: Pavlovian trade. response by the dip
5: yeah
1: I got to move on just to ask you this this move away from the Pavlovian response concept. You mentioned revenue neutral, right? Having to do mm. with the uh, tax reform plan that may or may not actually right. uh, get passed. How but is it is it re-election neutral as well? I mean because what uh, I understand Mitch McConnell, you know, Senate majority leader what he says, but yeah. you know all these congressmen and women they they have to run for re-election. Correct. And the president is still uh popular in the districts where a lot of these conservative Republicans uh, represent. Mm -hmm. What if we do get some kind of tax reform plan. What does that do?
5: Oh, then you will see the dollar rally. I mean, and, and you will see a sell-off in treasuries because there will be essentially a, a positive fiscal response that will happen in 2018. And what follows on that is the assumption then that given you'll see fiscal stimulus, that gives the Fed more room to take rates now.
1: Okay. And I'm just wondering, do you also see the possibility that companies will have to take the money that they have been using for buybacks and uh, dividend increases? And in order to get increased productivity rather than hiring more people. They're going to invest it in technology. They're going to spend it on capital projects.
5: They they may. It depends on what their cost of capital is. And that's the whole story about bringing money back overseas. If you bring back money overseas, it has to be cheaper than your current cost of capital. Otherwise, it doesn't pay to reinvest.
2: I think that if the dollar does strengthen, it's going to tank markets. Because if you think about it, uh, there's... equities. Well, yeah, equities. And and wouldn't it also be... um, I mean... I, I don't know. Am I my my just I'm just seeing all the leveraged trades that have been built on a weak dollar, whether it's emerging markets, local currency, emerging markets, uh, whether it's oil and gold and things that are priced in the dollar. I mean,
5: right. well go- gold won't do well if the dollar rises, no oil emerging markets because a lot of foreign a lot of the emerging market countries, have dollar-denominated loans. So as the dollar increases, their debt becomes more expensive. So EM tends not to do well when the dollar rallies.
2: And also, there's been so much money that goes into local currency emerging markets from hard currency investors, namely U.S. investors. So if the dollar strengthens, that means that those emerging market currencies weaken, and poof,
5: there yeah. go returns. Well, there, isn't, there won't be an incentive to go into EM if the dollar strengthens, because you, you'll the dollar-invested assets will will flourish.
2: It'll be very interesting to see how this uh, rolls. Uh, Vincent, thank you so much. Thank and you. can you can you give us just really quickly what's your bet? think it's going to weaken to the year end?
5: The dollar, yeah, I, I don't like the odds of fiscal reform passing. and I think um, I think there are other things that are going to hold the hand of the Fed so we're not going to see u s. interest rates buoy the dollar higher
2: all right. Vincent Sincnorella, he is not uh, drinking the glass of opium. Uh, Vincent is our FX strategist for Bloomberg. Well, there is a big, big question right now among many investors, which is gold. Does it matter anymore? Is it a haven asset? And should you be buying it as a lot of people expect inflation to pick up and are concerned about inflated asset prices? Here to give us his view is Frank Holmes. He is the chief executive officer and chief investment officer of U.S. Global Investors, which is based in San Antonio, Texas. But he joins us here in New York. Uh, Frank, uh, you are bullish on gold. Go gold. Go gold. Why?
6: Well, I think if you look back since this 2000, the year 2000, gold has far outperformed the S&P 500, which shocks people. Uh, and then there's these short-term runs, which we're experiencing again, and that's predominantly because of negative real interest rates. And whenever negative is explained to your listeners, is whenever the government saying, buy my bonds, my two-year, my five-year bonds, take away the monthly CPI number, gives you a positive or negative real rate of return. And whenever that is negative, gold goes up, dollar goes down. Whenever it's positive, dollar goes up, gold goes down. So gold is money for half of the world. And it, it, it shows up in reserves. It shows up a significant factor. China is going to be floating a won a bond and it's backed by gold. Uh, for them to make it so that the credibility internationally, people don't want to turn and take the renminbi, just their paper. They say, well, it's not going to be collateralized with gold. So I think it's, that's important. Um, and the other part is more a significant long-term is the rise, I call it the love trade. The rise of GDP per capita in Chindia. China and India affectionately known as 40% of the world's population. Their rising GDP has led to a continuous, and it comes in waves of buying for gifts, They buy 24 karat gold jewelry. Uh, It only has a 10 to 20% markup. So you get to wear your wealth.
1: Wearing your wealth, I guess wearing it on your sleeve as well. Uh, You know, you mentioned this, this idea about gold, but I'm wondering, do people buy gold as investments because they think the world is going to come to an end? Or do they buy it because they recognize something about the way that currencies operate that make gold just a great investment that you can buy and sell and make some money on.
6: I think there's there's two parties to that. And I, and I think that, uh, as I said earlier, that the, the biggest buyers who really shocks you is the love trade, not the fear trade. The short-term spurts and rallies is the fear trade. Uh, And they're the more savvy currency players that are taking a look at what are the factors will drive a country's currency up or down. Uh, And they look at monetary policy. They look at CPI numbers and they look at fiscal policy. So until there's really a pushback in fiscal policy that is streamlining all these regulations globally that are taking place, then you're going to have to live with cheap negative interest rates.
2: Frank, when when did you get most bullish uh, on gold?
6: Well, I, I grew up in, in, in coming from Canada originally uh, in, t- in Toronto. Uh, you study geology and mining at a young age, and uh, so I became fascinated on those on those drivers at a young age.
2: But I mean, as far as recent events, I mean, is there something about what's going on right now that makes you bullish on gold, or are you just generally uh, bullish
6: on?
1: Cool. He's got he's it. I mean, prospect. he's got it.
6: Got great it in His question. Canadian blood.
2: Exactly. I mean, it's, it's in, in your in, Canadian it's, it's, blood. You uh, grew up learning yeah. about mining. Not in a
6: hockey stick. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think the thing is, I've always mentioned is that people should have a ten percent weighting in gold and rebalance each year because there's inherent volatility uh, with currencies, and that's what protects you as an investor. So it's a form of insurance.
2: Some people would say that Bitcoin is the new gold with respect to that sort of uncorrelated asset class that does not have the same kind of correlations as some currencies. Do you agree?
6: No, I I think that it's the most incredible exercise in crowdfunding. Uh, If you go to TED Talks, which have readers, I mean, 180 countries, 2 million people a day watch TED Talks. And the education of blockchain technology, cryptocurrency, Ethereum, Bitcoin, it's all over the world by very intelligent people learning about this space. And the crowdfunding that's taking place and the funding, I think it's got a little control. There's 800 uh, ICOs. Uh, there's no corporate governance with these these things. But the idea of Bitcoin and Ethereum and Ripple uh, and there's about 10 of them, but in particular the Ethereum, which is a contract, I think they're very significant and we're very early like we were in the internet uh, of how you can do a transaction and have a contract and you can basically move money and you can do it every hour uh, 24-7 trading stocks. The arbitrage with currencies when you go over here to Canada, the banks are going to charge from 4% to 12% on your currency. It's going to cost you 2%. If someone
1: came to you, Frank, and said, look, I buy your analysis, I think this is something that I want to invest in, but I don't want to lose my shirt, what would you recommend that they do?
6: Well, it's, you just have to understand it's very cutting edge and it's very volatile, especially with Jeremy Dime, what he said... Uh, the, uh, the very aggressive statements that they've made. Uh, he's a great leader uh, as a CEO, he's done a phenomenal job, but at the same time, uh, their bank and other banks have been charged and found in court system for manipulating the price of gold. So you hear from uh, other people that write about this are saying, well, they must be short or they have another yeah, but agenda. how
1: would you invest? Is there a way to invest, just quickly?
6: Well, I don't think there's a, a clear way. Where Hopefully I've invested in a company that's gonna go public next week that's the first mining company. Uh, and it's with a company called Genesis Mining, and it is a pure mine, it mines these uh, mint coins, new coins.
1: I can tell that mining is a theme, right? Mining goes from gold to mining Bitcoin. Yes, it does. Frank
2: has cufflinks that say buy and sell. Awesome.
1: You like that, huh? You know what the price of gold was in 2000? two thousand? Two hundred and seventy-three dollars an ounce. Today, thirteen hundred twenty-one dollars. Thanks very much. Frank Combs, he is the chief executive, chief investment officer of US Global Investors based in San Antonio.